Hello and welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Waite. A few days into November, I received a voicemail from my uncle. It was about 6.30 in the morning on a Wednesday. In the voicemail, he said my cousin was missing and he needed me to come help look for him. So I hopped in my truck and went to the hotel. When I got there, a police SUV was parked in front. I went into the lobby and the police entered the lobby at about the same time from the hotel hallway. Obviously, they had been talking to my uncle. They started talking to the hotel clerk. I waited nearby, listening. My cousin had gone out for a smoke, but when he went back inside, the clerk thought my cousin was a homeless guy trying to get in. My cousin got confused and left the building and started walking. November in Canada is usually cold and wet. It was dark and raining. There was snow on the ground already. My cousin has special needs. He can't function on his own. As far as I can remember, he's been this way his entire life. He's an adult, but is mentally low-functioning. He smokes a lot of cigarettes. Sometimes my uncle and my cousin are in town, usually for health care. I don't see them much, so it was unusual to get a call from my uncle. But the circumstances are not uncommon. I've gone looking for people in the snow before. Well, let's start to tell that story. How did the students ultimately go missing? Well, that's, that's a good question, and thank you. Um, and one of the things that came out in the inquest that always struck me as a central, uh, a central point to this entire story was no evidence was given whatsoever as to how the five boys that died in the water wound up in the water. None whatsoever. And we still don't know? That's right. So there is evidence about how they died. You know, the toxicology reports are back. The, the coroner's reports can indicate certain things. But the coroner's reports can't indicate how the kids got into the water. What was the most frequent cause of death? Drowning. Drowning. But you're also pulling bodies from water that have been in the water for mm. a week, two weeks, or in Jordan's case, longer, months. I mean, there's not a lot. So the, some, the dead do tell their own stories, and some, um, there are some markings, and you can tell some things, but you can't tell everything. Jordan Wabas was from my wife's family's Indian reservation. We call them communities, and we call them First Nations, but officially and politically and historically and economically, they are Indian reservations. Jordan's family and my wife's family are from Reserve Number 240, I'm registered with Indian Reservation number 204. Graffiti spray-painted on some walls in town simply says 239. Jordan Wabas is included in the book Seven Fallen Feathers by Tanya Talega. The book talks about young Native men who have gone missing and have been found dead in a local river. Native men going missing and being found in the river has been a big issue. It was investigated not only by police, but also by external organizations. In reality, there have been many more than seven so-called fallen feathers, but it makes a catchy book title. In fact, according to information in the Systemic Review conducted by the Office of the Independent Police Review Director, there are more than 30 suspicious deaths of Indigenous people where there were allegations that Thunder Bay Police Service did not conduct thorough investigations. 
The first paragraph of the key findings of the police review director's report reads, quote, The inadequacy of TBPS sudden death investigations the OIPRD reviewed was so problematic that at least nine of these cases should be reinvestigated. Based on the lack of quality of the initial investigations, I cannot be confident that they have been accurately concluded or categorized. End quote. Where I live, there is the widely held notion that young native men get so drunk or wasted on drugs or whatever that they all fall into the river and die. This notion is even implicit in the news briefs released by police to the public through the local newspaper. Quote, Jordan Wabass is native Canadian and was last heard from on Monday. He is six foot one and weighs 200 pounds. Police say he may be in the Victoriaville area and has been known to frequent the South Core area. End quote. That news brief appeared in the paper on February 11th, four days after Jordan had gone missing. That was the same day that the police conducted their first ground search for Jordan. Reality is complicated. Some people party along the river. And by party, I mean drink hairspray or hand sanitizer or huff paint thinner to get intoxicated. Some people drink alcohol, but it's usually cheap wine or beer. I've responded to an overdose by the river. The guy must have been smoking an analog of fentanyl. I've also responded on the street to an overdose. In both those cases, I was the first responder. And both of those instances were while I just happened to be there in the South Core or Victoriaville area for different jobs. Back when Jordan Wabass went missing, it was Monday, February 7th of 2011, and it was brutally cold. It was minus 30 degrees Celsius weather. Over the next few days, police conducted searches for Jordan as a missing person. But about six days after Jordan went missing, my wife and I found out that there was a search party and we joined. There were a lot of us and we went to areas where he was last seen. I was looking in sheds and alleys and empty cars. I looked along train tracks. I didn't see anything. I had been looking in the wrong direction. He was eventually found. In May of 2011, in a river just over two kilometers away from where he was last seen. To this day, I wonder how he got so far from his bus stop when the weather was that cold given what he was wearing. Quote, He wore white Adidas running shoes, a Maple Leafs baseball cap, a purple Hurley hoodie under a lined dark blue denim jacket, a white t-shirt that said, Blink if you want me, and black plastic wind pants. End quote. The night he went missing, he was seen on a public transit bus. The last image of Jordan is in video footage from the bus taken at 10 o'clock at night. I'm Tom Lamarat and welcome to Nation to Nation. There's no political panel tonight because what we're going to discuss should never be political. We're talking about a child's death, a life cut far too short. Here are some names and faces you may know. Kanina Sue Turtle. Amy Owen, Courtney Scott, and Tammy Kiash. Okay, this is Stairway to Heaven.
14 girls who died within six months of each other in different parts of Ontario while in child protective services. Nation Nation producer Kenneth Jackson has written extensively about Kanina and Amy, showing how their suicides were connected. Now Kenneth has new information on Tammy Kiash, about who knew what and when, about the foster home she was living in when her body was found in a Thunder Bay waterway, May 2017. Tammy Kiash was a young woman from the same Indian reservation that my family is from. It is Indian Reservation number 204. It is also known as North Caribou Lake. She was in Thunder Bay living with foster parents. She also went missing. She was also found in a local river. In her case, the police were quick to say accidental drowning or some such thing. That same day, another young Indigenous man also went missing. His name was Josiah Begg. Quote, After a six-year lull in which no Indigenous youth were found dead in the city's waterways, two teens disappeared on the same night and both of their bodies were found within two weeks of their disappearance. Tammy Kiash, a 17-year-old artist and high school student, failed to make her curfew at her foster home that Saturday evening. And Josiah Begg, a 14-year-old boy who was visiting Thunder Bay with his father from the remote fly-in community of Kitchenamekasib in Ninawag, disappeared into thin air that same night. End quote. There have been quite a few accidental drownings in local rivers. In some cases, like those of Reggie Bushy and Stacy DeBungy, the police quickly declared each event non-criminal. These deaths and the distrust between police and Native people led to outside investigations from the Office of the Independent Police Review Director, a private investigator, and eventually journalists such as Tanya Talega and Jody Porter. I'm using Talega's book for quotes in this episode, and I used to work with Jody Porter when I was a technician announcer for the CBC. On this January day in Kiwewin First Nation, Christian Morriso is wading through knee-deep snow towards the graves of his father and his son. The grave with the big cross on it is, uh, is my father, Norval, and uh, the one beside him over here on his left side is, is my son, Kyle. Kyle Morriso. Uh, What's it like for you to be here? Cold. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's uh, a lot of people think it may be hard or make you feel down, but uh, it, I don't feel that way when I come here. I feel at peace knowing uh, they were both in my life and uh, they moved on. Christian shivers and smiles now in the snow and sunshine, but there are darker days. It's been more than six years since his son's body was pulled from a river in Thunder Bay. There's no high school in Kiwewin. Kyle was in the city living at a boarding home working towards a diploma in the fall of 2009. He disappeared one October night. Two weeks later, his body was found in the river. My own thoughts of it were wildly, I guess, to try to come to terms with it. It's hard to say why they're all natives. I don't know why it always has to be native people. Four other First Nations boys died like Kyle in Thunder Bay. They, too, were far from their families attending school when they disappeared. Their teenage bodies were also plucked from a river. No one knows whether the boys fell in or were pushed. There's no sign of suicide. Police say the deaths are unexplained. You know, our father spoke about these uh, rivers here that come out from Lake Superior, 
and uh, there was a legend that there was a water spirit here that would come up from the Lake Superior. He would drag these uh, young people into the river and take them. That's what my last thought was, I guess, what, what I thought about what happened to my son. When I was about 11 years old, I rode my bike to my mom's friend's house. My mom was partying there. Beer has been her drug for as long as I can remember. I went there because she wanted me to come get her and ride beside her while she walked home. I guess that was the plan because my mom can't drive. She was drunk when I got there. Stumbling drunk. The distance from her friend's place to our place was maybe two miles. She couldn't make it home. She fell in a ditch by the side of the road and couldn't get herself onto her feet. She was heavy set and I was small. I couldn't move her. I couldn't wake her. She was semi-conscious. So I grabbed her purse and I rode home as fast as I could. My brother was there. He was 15 or 16 at the time and had his driver's license. It may have been his learner's permit. This was after my parents divorced and my mom got the car, so my brother and I drove back to where my mom was. It took the both of us to try to drag her into the car. We eventually did and eventually got her home. Just another day for the Waite brothers. No one stopped to help or ask if we needed assistance. Those nice Canadians just drove by in both directions. My mom drank a lot back then. And she was mean. At about that age, maybe I was 10 or 11, she kicked me out of the house. We were new to town and I didn't know anybody. This was months before she passed out in the ditch. I didn't know where anything was. It was winter and it was nighttime. I can't remember how cold it was. I didn't die, so it couldn't have been that cold. But because I felt like I had no place to go, all I did was walk in a circle in the yard between townhouses. I don't know how long I walked for. I walked long enough to follow my own footprints in the snow, like that scene in Conan the Barbarian, where he's pushing the wheel of pain. I walked until I figured she had passed out and I could go back inside. The ashes were trampled into the earth and the blood became as snow. Who knows what they came for? Weapons of steel or murder. It was never known, for the leader rode to the south, while children went north with the Vanir. No one would ever know that my lord's people had lived at all. His was a tale of sorrow. I like following animal tracks. 
snow, mud, sand, and even grass can show where creatures have been and what they've been doing. You can tell who has been around even if you haven't seen them directly. When I was doing outreach work, I would follow tracks sometimes to see where they led. Then you can meet people along them. But I'm not doing outreach work anymore. However, that doesn't mean that I won't end up searching for more people again someday. Thankfully, my cousin wasn't missing for long, only a couple of hours. My uncle's friend, who happened to be in town at the same time, got the same call I did. So he also went out looking. He found him. The police were still with us at the hotel when my cousin arrived. There's a history of racism within the local police force against Native people. Official investigations have revealed it. I've read the findings, and I've experienced the racism. Nonetheless, I was glad the police were there. I was worried about their attitude about it, but they genuinely seemed sincerely concerned and professional. They asked my cousin some questions like whether or not he needed an ambulance. My cousin looked worried that the police were there and that I was there and that his dad was outside the hotel. My uncle told him not to worry and I said to him, We were worried about you. My cousin was soaking wet when he got back to the hotel. He had been wearing a winter jacket, but it wasn't zipped up and he didn't pull the hood over his head. He was wearing shoes but no socks. And yet he was about a mile away from the hotel where my uncle's friend found him, not too far from the rivers. I didn't hang around much after he got back. I went home and got ready for the day, feeling a mix of emotions. And I wasn't even late for work. That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite. And this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast.